When I was a boy, there was a little crossroads store called David's about a mile from our house. It was a small ramshackle place that carried milk and bread, cheese and lunch meat, orange juice and soft drinks. He had a small hardware section, screwdrivers, hammers, hatchets, nails, screws, bolts, fuses, and the all-purpose southern tool, duct tape. (laughs) There was motor oil, transmission fluid, and antifreeze, and I was most interested in the penny and nickel candy, fudge sickles, ice cream sandwiches, nutty buddies, baseball cards, comic books, and mad magazine. David also sold what I now know was very cheap costume jewelry. But to my young eyes, it could have been gold, silver, and diamonds from Tiffany's. And when I was about 10 years old, I fell in puppy love with a little red-headed girl in my class, and I decided that I had to buy her a charm bracelet from David's. So I saved my lunch money, I earned $1.50 raking leaves for a neighbor, neighbor and siphoned some coins out of my piggy bank. I thought the bracelet sold for $3.49. I'd figured the Georgia sales tax, which at that time was 3%, 11 cents, so it was a total of three sixty. I had $3.60. So with my money together, I went to David's store, asked David to get the charm bracelet out of the case, carefully counted out my money, and David said, that'll be $4.12. <laughs> I'd been wrong about the price. I was 52 cents short. It was close to Christmas. We were going to be out on our break soon, and I wasn't going to be able to give the little red-headed girl her present. So right there in the store, I started to cry. Now, boys in the South don't cry over unbought jewelry. or much of anything else. And and looking back, I now know that what I was feeling was a sense of shame. The shame of not having enough, which felt like not being enough. Now, David took pity on me and gave me my first commercial loan, 52 cents. I would owe him 55 cents, he said, in a couple of weeks. And So I had the charm bracelet, and the embarrassment, though, lingered. And that fear of not being enough got stirred up in me for the first time. But it wasn't the last time I felt it, by any means. At the checkout counter of a grocery store in Louisville, when Anita and I had just enrolled in seminary, a month after we got married, we actually had to put back some of the items which the cashier rung up because I didn't have enough money to cover our basic grocery bill. Not much later, our car died, and I had no hope for credit. Our first couple of Christmas trees were like Charlie Brown Christmas trees. Literally, we cut them all out of the woods and then we decorated them with 
designs and pictures we cut out of Christmas cards and hung them on the tree with paper clips. Now these are good memories for me at this point. But they were hard then. I mean, what kind of husband can't buy basic groceries? Can't get enough credit to buy or repair a car? Can't get a proper Christmas tree with real lights and real ornaments. It's not enough. Didn't have enough, but didn't feel like I was enough. Writer Larry Wywoody remembers a North Dakota winter so cold that he had to chop up furniture to feed the fire, to keep his family warm. We do that kind of thing emotionally and spiritually all the time. We burn up our reserves. Problems pile up. Demands keep coming. Pressures keep growing. Endless weeks of too much to do, so your body rebels. Your mind protests, your heart tries to warn you. And then a crisis comes and takes you way past your limits. Your mother comes down with heart disease. Your 17-year-old totals his car and gets arrested for drunk driving. Your aging father starts forgetting how to find his way home. Your brother's house gets consumed by fire and he and his family move in with you and you think even if you can't say it out loud you think you know I just don't have anything left to give I'm not sure I'm going to make it faith starts to fade and hope nearly vanishes love drains away joy all but disappears not enough. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus attended a wedding party which scarcity threatened to ruin. The wine gave out long before the wedding party was over and upon learning that every wineskin and barrel in the place was dry, Mary, Jesus' mother, came to Jesus and said, They have no wine. Now Mary brought this problem to her son because it's very likely that he and his friends had helped to cause it. Now now just just hold on, Baptist. It'll be all right. (laughs) The, The custom was for wedding guests to provide part of the wine by bringing it to the party as a gift. Jesus and his friends apparently had come to the party empty-handed, but with a healthy thirst. And Mary was embarrassed by her son and his friends' breach of etiquette. They have no wine, and you, my freeloading son, and those bums who are friends of yours, since you've caused it, You need to do something about it. And Jesus responded, 
not with surprise, but with irritation. Woman, what's that got to do with me and you? My hour's not yet come. In John's gospel, his hour refers to the time of his death. But after he'd made it clear to his mother that he wasn't going to do anything because she wanted him to, he performed what the gospel of John calls the first of his signs. You know the story. Jana read it for us a few moments ago. Nearby, there were six large stone jars, each held between 20 and 30 gallons of water. Now, this was basically dishwater. It was going to be used later to perform uh, the Jewish rituals of purification. Jesus ordered some of the servants to fill these jars the rest of the way up with water and take the jars to the chief steward, the head caterer, and somewhere between the point where they had originally rested and the chief steward, the water, became wine. Alexander Pope once said something like, water looked at its creator and blushed red. To say the least, the party was no longer out of wine. There was a lot of it now, between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. And it wasn't just a lot of wine, it was very fine wine. The caterer tasted it and he was impressed. He was also confounded. He he didn't know where the wine had come from. Only the servants and Jesus knew and they weren't saying Surprised by the overwhelming supply of wine and its high quality, the caterer said to the bridegroom, you know, this isn't the way it's done usually. Usually, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine because after you've drunk some, you can't tell what good wine is. Hold hold on, Baptist. But you've kept the good wine until now. Washington Post uh, columnist Gene Weingarten once wrote about the well-founded scientific principle that after the third beer, everything is PBR. (laughs) That's what the head caterer was saying. The practice in that culture was serve the best wine you can afford until people can't tell the difference anymore and then break out the three-buck chuck. what was Jesus thinking? I mean, wouldn't iced tea or (laughs) that punch that gets made at church socials out of lime sherbet and ginger ale, wouldn't (laughs) wouldn't iced tea and that sherbet ginger ale punch have been just fine? Do you really have to make wine? I read about Miss Lillian many, many years ago who taught a Sunday school class and she managed, it was eight and nine-year-old boys, and she managed almost every week to turn whatever lesson they had into a temperance lesson. She warned them about demon rum. Well, one Sunday it was this story. And her most adventurous student asked her, Miss Lillian, how do you explain that, that Jesus turned water into wine? 
And she drew herself up to her full height and she sort of clucked and said, I don't know how to explain it and I'd have a lot more respect for him had he never done it. This was the first of his signs. Now, what did it signify? What did it signify? On an episode of The Tonight Show a lot of years ago, Johnny Carson interviewed a young boy from West Virginia who had rescued two friends from a coal mining accident. The boy mentioned his small town church, and Johnny asked, do you attend Sunday school? And the young boy said, yes. And Johnny said, and what are you learning about in Sunday school? And he said, well, last Sunday our lesson was about Jesus going to a wedding party and turning water into wine. And Johnny said, well, what did you learn from that story? And the boy thought a few seconds and said, I learned that if you want a really good wedding, be sure Jesus is there. <laughs> well, I think that's part of what it signifies. But John says he revealed his glory. For hundreds of years, the Jewish people had dreamed of the day when the Messiah would come. When their deliverer would arrive on the scene and usher in God's reign of justice and peace. And they believed that on that day when the Messiah came and the new order of justice and peace began, on that day there would begin a continual celebration, a never-ending wedding feast of joy. So, for example, eight years, eighty, eight centuries, sorry, before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah had promised, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts, will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. It will be said on that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for Him so that He might save it. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. And another prophet, writing in the spirit of Isaiah, two centuries later said, The Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so your builder shall marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Israel expected that when the Messiah came, when justice and peace became reality. There would be a feast, more than enough food, more than enough wine, and the joy of God's wedding with God's people in whom God rejoices and delights. There would be the sound of singing and dancing, and instead of not enough, more than enough, more than enough. So when Jesus turned water into wine, it was a sign. 
that the party was beginning. That there was an abundance of love. A surplus of joy. Now, sometimes what Jesus is doing among us and with us isn't obvious, is it? And that's because Jesus sometimes works as he did in Cana of Galilee on the day of that wedding, quietly, on the margins, with the servants. And he takes ordinary things. I mean, what's more ordinary than dishwater? and make something extraordinary out of it. Plainest water became richest wine. Shameful scarcity became amazing abundance. So friends, we can count on Jesus. He's wherever we are, working on our behalf, even when we can't see what he's doing. Even when he's working on the margins, quietly. We might feel, I know I sometimes feel, we might feel sometimes like we're running down and running out. But he never does. And there's always more from Him for us. Always more from Him for us. He makes astonishing possibilities out of the most meager resources. Jesus always gives abundantly whatever whatever we need to live the life He is calling us to live. You will have what you need to live the life God calls you to live. You will. Because he will turn the water into wine. Amen.